20 million books sold. Zero f**ks given. It's the subtle art of not giving a f podcast with your host, Mark Manson. Scott, it's great to have you here. Mark, it is so good to chat with you again. One of the, the first guests on the new podcast, an old friend of mine. It's, uh, yes. it's an honor to have you here. Speaking of honors, you were recently named by Stanford in the top 2% of scientists. You know, I really don't like to make a big deal out of it, but technically my ranking put me at 0.05%. Who's counting? I didn't want to be like douchey about it. Yeah. I just said I I did technically make the within the top 2%. Okay. So we'll, we'll edit that top 0.5%. Okay. Oh, 0.05%. What's interesting about that though. And you mentioned this on Twitter, you were put in a special education class. That's right. And I've actually never talk to you about this, about your childhood. And I, I'm curious to, to open up with that and talk about it. Thank you. I mean, it, it is linked to this ranking thing because it didn't it really didn't feel real at all, you know? And it's like, I wonder like what point in my life am I going to feel like, uh, you know, it, I didn't like fake it in some way. <laughs> We're all wondering that. <laughs> about me? No, no, no. <laughs> Way to make me feel better about yeah, myself. Yeah. You're like, we've all been worrying that. Yeah. Like, no, um, that's good. It makes me feel better when I hear that. Cause like, uh, I had friends who were like, oh, we believe it. It was like, I, I wish I didn't need to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, for the first couple of years of my life, I had a warning to, I had basically a lot of fluid in my ears. And it made it very hard for me to hear anything. I was effectively deaf for the first three years of my life. I was screaming, you know, crying a lot, walked around crying. It's funny. It's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't express what I wanted to express. And that was super frustrating. And teachers thought I was stupid. And also they said I was immature. Um, They had me repeat third grade and uh, I was bullied a lot and uh, kept in this kind of remedial classroom until ninth grade. And what changed? Well, this teacher who had never seen me before, she was covering for the regular teacher. It was the start of high school. So by the way, it was like a fresh start. I love fresh starts. Yeah. You know, I love when people like view you anew, yeah. you know, with fresh eyes. Especially when you're not the cool kid. The, yeah. the fresh start is yeah, that's right. a godsend. That's, that's so true. <laughs> this special ed teacher took me aside. I was taking this untimed test. They take you out of the regular classroom and they put you in the special room. And I remember how frustrated I was. And I think I made a snarky comment like, I have the rest of my life to finish this untimed test. So what's the point? You know, what's the rush? She took me aside after class. Everyone was leaving. And she um, said, I just want to talk to you for a second. And she, she like kind of tilted her head and she's like, I think I see you. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> see if my zipper was down. <laughs> she's like, why are you here? You know, I see your frustration. Um, and I went in my head and I was like, why am I here? Why am I? And then I, I, I replayed the, the, the question in my head and then it really got to like, yeah, why am I here? It's crazy how there are moments in our life where we are just kind of waiting for someone to ask us the right question yeah. and then it can just activate everything, yeah. you know? And I, this like surge of inspiration, you know, went and surged through me and I, I ran to the payphone, called my mom and I was like, I'm not reporting back to special ed tomorrow. She's screaming, freaking out. She's like, what are they doing to you over there? You know, what happened? But I became the first one in my school's history for the kid himself to break out of really? special ed. Yeah. I mean, I was the first one for it to dawn on me that, I, wait, I can take myself out. I mean, it was nice to be prompted and to be asked, why am I still here? Yeah. But I said to her, you know what? What You're right. Like, I want to see what I'm capable of. Wow. Yeah. And then did you excel in... In high school, after I that? did. Um, I won't say I excelled at everything, but what I did is I really um, became fell in love with learning, and with just I almost it almost became like a challenge, a fun challenge to myself to see well what can I handle, yeah. because I went through so many years where I didn't think I could handle anything. I mean, I was in all remedial classes. It was so boring, and so so curious like what could I handle. So I signed up for like some things I did well, like lab came Latin scholar. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was super fun. My senior year of high school. Um, yeah. I um I signed up for a West Side Story, the musical, and that I did not do so well. <laughs> <laughs> I dropped out. I I said I can't handle the dancing. <laughs> it's just I couldn't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the orchestra. Um, so my grandfather, I asked my grandfather if he would teach me how to play cello because he was a cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra and he was retired at that time. Um, and he was delighted to teach me how to play, and I learned over a summer how to play how to play cello well enough to join the orchestra, at least play the downbeat of every measure in the beginning. But I quickly, the crutches came off quickly, and I realized I had a knack for music. Um, must have been in the genes uh, somewhere with my grandfather, and I also joined the choir. Um, joining the choir was actually a, a 
fluke. I was hanging out with my friends in the choir room after class one day, and I was making fun of them. And I was like, you guys sound like this. <laughs> and, the, and the choir teacher heard me, and she said, would you like to join our choir? Are you? I think you are really talented. <laughs> and then I... The rest is history. Rest, yeah, <laughs> ended up becoming a professional opera singer for a short period of my wow. life. Yeah, yeah. Wow, man. So given your history, what what's your take on standardized testing that's been in the news a lot again lately uh it's kind of a controversial topic within educational circles what's your take great question um standardized testing like um we're talking about academic standardized testing in k through 12 is actually very highly correlated with iq tests in a lot of ways they're really thinly disguised iq tests so if you don't have the kind of mind that aces um, abstract reasoning and working memory which a lot of people on the neurodivergent spectrum do have trouble with working memory. That's kind of their defining thing is they have trouble with organization. They have trouble um, keeping lots of things that are mine at once. You know, they, then you'll have trouble on standardized tests, um, uh, not deterministically, but there's a probability that you'll have, you'll have trouble on standardized tests. So I think that we need to, first of all, call spade a spade. In some circles, it's even controversial to say that they're thinly disguised, you know, the SAT is a thinly disguised IQ test. It is. I have research data proving. <laughs> they don't <laughs> prove anything in fact, but showing that to sure. Highly probable. The you know, the SAT, the board, they don't want to say that. You know, they don't they they, they want to think that if, if rich people put in enough money, then you know, for tutoring, then they can improve their scores. Yeah. But no, it's a thinly veiled IQ test. Well, which is part of the controversy, right? Because if you do have a very highly intelligent child from a poor socioeconomic background that test can actually be the thing that kind of pulls them out of that or, or maybe sorts for that. Excellent point. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that that doing well on standardized tests can actually be a golden ticket for people who are living in poverty and can't demonstrate their intelligence in any other way. By the way, I'm not one of these people who is anti-IQ. This is how I phrased it in the past. I'm not anti-IQ, but I'm anti-comparing everyone on a single step standardized metric. And that's different yeah. because there are people who are generally high IQ uh, minds and they are not winning either and no one's winning sure. in the education system intellectually gifted kids from an IQ perspective are not winning you know you put them all in one room and say go be gifted together you know bye and then the <laughs> teachers go drink coffee <laughs> how's that winning for them either yeah so does that make sense there's a certain level of nuance there I like to yeah. bring to the table well you brought up this term of neurodivergence and you were actually the first person I ever heard this term from. Really? Like maybe five or six years ago. And I love that it's starting to catch on. And, and I'm starting to see it in a lot of different places. But talk about what is neurodivergence? How does it differ maybe from other definitions of, you know, the previous categories that were, are common in parts of psychology? And why is it important? Yeah, I was just on a panel in New York on what is neurodiversity. And I think no one could agree really could agree on a definition. Classic psychology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's become one of those things where when a term becomes so, uh, it's starting to mean anything, it's like a rubber band, it's going to snap and not mean anything. And I, I fear that's what's starting to happen with neurodiversity. It started off pertaining mostly or really just exclusively to the autistic community. And I'm happy that it expanded to things like dyslexia and other learning disabilities, ways of learning in a school system. It has expanded even further, and I'm, I'm still okay with that, to certain forms of mental illness. You know, I think bipolar, you know, it really does give you a different way of experiencing a world that puts you kind of in an extreme um, uh, modality. But right now, where we're at with it is, I, I feel like it's, it's if it hasn't snapped, it's very, very close. Yeah. To snapping that rubber band because if you go on TikTok, everyone, uh, every kid on there on TikTok um, has is neurodivergent now. The neurodivergent and trauma, you know, yeah. the two biggest, they both. And they and now, you know, you can't even say one without the other. You know, there's like a, almost become like a now it's like super cool. Whereas back in my day, I was bullied every day for it. Right. So. There's status attached <laughs> yeah. to it. I wish I grew up <laughs> in 2023 because I just want to say in my day, in the 80s. Yes, that's Halloween. <laughs> I wish I could have gone on TikTok and get like, and for my peers to be like, oh, that's so cool. You're neurodivergent. You're weird. You're quirky. Yeah. Oh, you're slow. <laughs> that's so cool. Be part of our group. But instead, I was, you know, just bullied every day. Why do you think that that status has been associated with things like trauma, neurodivergence, gender identity, things like that? 
I think that these kids are having an identity crisis. I think that we're living in an age of an identity crisis and there's just so much uh, unknown. You know, whenever you're in environments where there's um, so much insecurity around you, talk about, you know, the pandemic, talk about uncertainty, people tend to cling more to belonging and finding somewhere where they belong. And, and teenagers throughout the course of human history, sure, uh, it's no big shocker that teenagers are the prime identity crisis age, Yeah, right? So you just compound that with such great uncertainty and such a craving for belonging into some group. Personally, I think we need to help children uh, and adult, all of us learn how to belong more to ourselves, to our unique selves, and lead from that sense of confidence and self-esteem. But I don't think that's what's happening. People are so desperate to seek belonging to a group and they've forgotten to belong to themselves sometimes i feel like teenagers unconsciously they find the thing that is going to upset the older generations the most instinctively latch onto that and and if you look back through the generations you see that happening repeatedly you know like in the 60s it was free love and then in our generation it was sex drugs rock and roll and then you know with this generation it's social media and identifying with all these different ways of life and everything. But it, it's interesting because it's almost like now that I am one of the older generations, I think if I saw kids doing what I was doing when I was 16, I'd be like, ah, he's 16. Of course he's doing that. He'll be fine. You know, it, it's like they need to find that new limit to test. Yeah. And uh, it's true. Get everybody, all the old people freaking out. <laughs> I agree with you that adolescence period is, is just an extended identity crisis. It's the first time in your life that you are discovering who, who you're going to be in the world and who you want to be and who you're going to associate with. I also feel like that, you know, just on a more macro scale, there's kind of this like cohort identity seeking process of like, who are we as a generation? I wish the kids didn't feel so much pressure to lock in their identity. Yeah. I wish we had cultures that really valued exploration, you know, Think how many years it take for me to feel like I know who I am. Answer: I still haven't figured it out. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> you never totally. Know. I'm still like, I mean, I'm much clearer than I was when I was 17, but I'm still not quite there, you know, because I've like, there's so many sides of me, you know. Yeah. And and what I've learned to embrace is just that fact: there's so many sides of me. Yeah. But I don't feel like we encourage kids to embrace that fact of being human, being a whole person. Instead, I feel like they put so much pressure on themselves. And I think we put pressure on them too to like yeah. figure it out so you can write it in your college essay and get into Harvard. Interesting enough, I think we're actually rewarding the kids the most who like are the most fragile. So yeah. that's an interesting one, you know. How so? You sort of, you get so many points in college essays now for the more vulnerable you are, you know, that you have all these vulnerable identities, you know, you're as fragile as possible, you know, please take pity on me in 500 ways, therefore I shouldn't get into college. Whereas in my day, I feel like we had to like write in our essays how strong we were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that setting off like a, a, a process where we allow kids to show um, over a longer period of time um, as they're trying to pursue their self-actualization, you know, being vulnerable is great. Being vulnerable is wonderful. But then also, what do you do with that vulnerability? I, I have a phrase I, I called confident vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where you can be vulnerable, but you can also have self-belief as you're being vulnerable. And also, I'd like to distinguish between lowercase v and uppercase v. So lowercase v is vulnerability just for the sake of vulnerability, mm -hmm. uh, for getting attention, uh, for getting uh, something else. Capital V vulnerability is like being vulnerable in the service of realizing a future goal you have and dream growth in the service of growth versus in the service of, dare I say, narcissism. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, I, th I think there's a difference between lowercase v and uppercase v, and I think we should re reward uppercase v more. I wrote m my dating book models 12 years ago. Which was about statistical models, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, those models. <laughs> did, I read, did I read the right book? The right book, yeah. <laughs> but that book talked a lot about vulnerability. And it was specifically directed at men. And I remember at the time, you know, vulnerability was much, it wasn't as common. It was much more taboo back then, especially am, among a male audience. And I went through great pains in that book to point out that this is not wallowing on the floor in a fetal position saying, oh, poor me, look at all the horrible things that have happened to me. It's actually, it's the opposite. It's being comfortable and 
sharing and expressing, like not being owned by the pains or struggles that you've gone through. And your um, book is about confident vulnerability in so many ways. It, it really Developing is. Developing a confidence in your vulnerability. Yes. Because, you know, when you, uh, with someone, a guy who's shy approaches a woman and is vulnerable, it's a very vulnerable thing. It's a right? form of to vulnerability. To say, like, you know, hey, like, I like you're, you. you're cute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, if you're rejected, the question is, what what happens? What do you do with that? I I have um taken actually consent courses. I know it sounds really not courses. I I've been part of like like there's cuddle parties. Maybe this is too much information, <laughs> but I've been to these parties where you it actually is LA. So yeah, they, they do a whole practice where you approach someone. You say, hey, would you like a hug? And if they say no, uh, <laughs> I'm good. Then you say, thanks for taking care of yourself, and you and you always smile and walk away. And you just practice. I don't think young people really practice the that, you yeah. know, and, and really being able to 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 still stay confident in who you are. Well, I will say there's definitely much more awareness around it than when we were young. That's true. Actually, that's true. Yeah. I loved your book, by the way. I was joking about statistics. No, I, I read your I book. And, uh, <laughs> I know you, I and, know and your book resonated with with my soul uh, yeah. a lot more than maybe some other uh, how to pick up chicks. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Time. You know, it's funny when I wrote that, I think Brene Brown had just come out like that year. And it's funny because the whole vulnerability thing, I was not aware of her when I wrote Models. And then I became aware of her stuff around the same time that, that Models came out. And I remember at the time I was ironically being very vulnerable, like taking a big chance in my industry by saying like, hey, the, the path here is not to be more bullheaded and more aggressive and less sensitive. The path here is to actually be more aware of your emotions and your flaws and your issues and become comfortable with them, develop a confident vulnerability. It's been weird over the last 10 years to see vulnerability to come and kind of dominate the culture in so many ways. I never would have predicted that it, it, would, it would get kind of turned into this toxic status signifier that it has become. And I remember in the early days after models came out, I, guys would email me and they would say, hey man, I tried your whole vulnerability thing. It didn't work. I like told this chick about this horrible thing that happened when I was a kid and she still didn't hook up with me. I'm like, that's, dude, that's not it. Like, <laughs> well, you, no, there's so much there, right? Because what you were selling is different than what the pickup artists were selling. And I don't need, we don't need to go to a whole rabbit hole, but there's, we'll say, and I won't paint all the pickup artists with the same brush, but I'll say some of them really were, their their pitch was foolproof method yes. right, to, to getting laid in five seconds upon meeting a girl. And so they already put in guys' heads some unattainable, and also I would say psychopathic yeah. <laughs> way of thinking about women in the world and that you should be entitled to anything. So that's a, that reeks of entitlement when someone says, "Hey, man, I was vulnerable and she and I didn't get laid." That that's like the nice guy syndrome, right? Yeah, yeah. You think if you're a nice guy, you should be entitled to get laid. And that's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. can assure you, that's not. Yeah. How it works. <laughs> you're, you're like I've been trying for twenty years. Uh, it works. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the stuff that I see online now feels like a permutation of that. You know, it's like I was so vulnerable about these things that happened to me. Give me attention, give me likes, give me, you know, share my, my Instagram or whatever. The, the social media question is interesting in general. I'm curious, what is your take on the supposed link between social media and mental health crisis? What I've seen on that data and from talking to uh, my colleagues about it, social media has had a very significant impact on mental health. And especially um, young girls, like 13-year-old girls, um, it has really magnified kind of the pressures we already put on uh, young girls, right? Boys aren't winning either there, right? So there's um, uh, a lot of uh, anxiety. I think that's cool they call it, that Jonathan's calling it the anxious generation, because there really is a lot of anxiety to keep up with, to be as cool, to get as many likes as this person. It, it, it creates a whole comparison game yeah. That is already, you know, since the dawn of human teenagers um, has uh, caused anxiety, that game of comparison. And it's put it. Puts it on steroids. Basically. On steroids. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Amplifies it. And I'm 44 and I feel yeah. 17 when I'm on Instagram, you know, Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> I feel 17 all over again. And I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, how did that 
Bobby Shmuel gets so many likes for that post, and I didn't get any likes for my <laughs> post. But, uh, and I try to curb that. I mean, I, I have better self-regulation skills than I did when I was 17, where I am like, ah, don't worry about that, Scott. It's hard. I, I find myself getting sucked into it sometimes as well. And it's hard in, in our situation as people with online platforms and online businesses, because like, let's say we post something on Instagram and it bombs, it does terribly. And I'll get really annoyed. And I always justify that annoyance or, or that being upset about that by like, well, it's bad for the business. You know, this is, this is reflecting poorly on the brand and it's going to lower conversions and all this stuff. And, you know, and if there's a bunch of bad posts in a row, I'll get mad at my team. And, and, but then sometimes like when I'm sitting alone, quiet at night, I'm like, am I really mad about the business? Or is it just, am I like that 15 year old girl who's like, well, Susie got, is getting more likes than me. Like, what does she have that I don't? There's something really profound there. So I want to double click on that. You know, I feel as though sometimes like I ask the question, do I exist if I have no social media presence? <laughs> it, it's the weirdest thing where we've come to the point where like the extent to which a person exists yeah. is the extent to which they have a big presence. You know, I, there's this one guy and I'm not going to mention his name. He's like my arch nemesis and he, uh, he has, you know, like, like he can say the dumbest things, uh, and he'll, and immediately it gets like 4 million likes with 4 million comments saying, you're a genius. What? He'll say something like to have confidence, you must be confident. And I'll look through like hot girl, hot girl being like, you're amazing. You're amazing. You're amazing. You're... Okay. I, I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. <laughs> are you but it's a fascinating phenomenon so i I sit back and i'm like wow does that motherfucker does he does he can i curse on 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 your old podcast called the fuck Fuck yourself podcast yeah it's the the fuck yourself we'll call it the fuck yourself podcast i just like renamed your podcast (laughs) to the go fuck yourself podcast (laughs) this is the special edition of the go fuck yourself podcast what's crazy too is that i mean at this point at a certain level of social media following like half the stuff that's going out isn't even created by the person whose face is on the profile picture. You know, I, I have a team that like goes through my 300 articles and sources different quotes and creates lists and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So at that end of the spectrum, it gets, it gets weird in that way. And then I guess, you know, on the lower end of the spectrum, if you're like a teenager and you're probably living and dying by a dozen likes, yeah. Right. Like it's you post and your best friend posts something and gets 10 likes and you post it and get four and you're like, oh, he's so much cooler. The cooler part is there. And I also think the existence part, I can't get away from that. Uh, that uh, question I just keep thinking about. Yeah. It's the new, uh, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it. It's like if, if a social media profile has no followers, does that person exist? It's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> I remember the time when like I was in grad school and there was no pressure at all to signal or showcase anything that I was doing. I was proud of whatever I was doing. Like during the course of my day, if I read a journal article, I was, and I understood it, I was proud of myself and I was good. Now there's this just feeling constantly like it doesn't matter if it's not for everyone else to see. So, okay. I'm glad you brought that up because doesn't this happen a little bit in academia with how often you get published or uh, what's the score on H index, H index on yeah. Google Scholar. That, that's what the rating was. That's what this uh, ranking oh, was. You. <laughs> See, you know, maybe maybe you're not crushing it on social, but your H index is fucking through the roof, man. I have a big H index. <laughs> <laughs> I should put that in dating, I, I dating resumes. I don't. That's why I have a big iPad. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Com- nice. Compensate for my low H index. Nice. <laughs> but seriously, I yeah, mean, yeah, it, yeah, some no. some of this is like humans will always play status games. You're right. And I think there's this tendency, and and this happened when I was a kid with different things, whatever the new technology is, that becomes the organizer of the new status game. And then people blame the technology, they don't blame fucking humans being human. My personal opinion is I'm a little bit more skeptical of the social media stuff, but I think if there is anything inherently problematic with social media, it's that it, it accelerates and amplifies the status game that's already there. It makes it way more legible. It makes it uh, way more widespread, easier to communicate, easier to reference. Like when we were in high school, if you were kind of a dork or if your friend was cooler than you, nobody really noticed except maybe like 
the 10 kids in closest proximity to you, maybe the 10 kids that knew both of you. I think the problem now is it's if your friend's cooler than you, the whole school knows because yeah. the whole school sees they have more followers. It's so true. You know, so it's like, it's almost like ranking people instead of ranking people by grades. It's like social media is like a never ending high school and we're all stuck in it. It's exactly, <laughs> that needs to be a social clip. Yeah. What you just said. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so true. Clip that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so true. It's so true. But you feel cool if you're winning in that world. <laughs> you feel cool if you're winning it. You're winning in that world, Mark. Well, I mean, you're cool. We both are. We tend to justify and sympathize with the status games that we win. And we blame the status games we lose. You know, Mark Leary, the social psychologist, has this idea of the sociometer. It suggests that our self-esteem rises or falls to the base to which we're perceiving that we have social value, or mm -hmm. he calls it relational value. But I feel like social media has created a sociometer where our self-esteem rises and falls based on how many likes we get. <laughs> and I think part of the, the trickiness there is that there was no legibility for that, right? So you could easily, kind of easily convince yourself that you were much cooler than you are. You could easily convince yourself that people like you more than they actually do. Whereas with social media where everything is being measured and the numbers are public and it's all there, completely legible for anybody to see, it becomes much harder to kid yourself. Like if you're posting things into the void and nobody's responding, including your own family and friends, it's really hard to... Con convince yourself that you're actually a really interesting person that so he, sad. I feel, fucking I, feel sad. Like I, got, I feel really sad all of a sudden <laughs> it is fucking sad for, for people who uh, but but also you know i think that even add more complexities to this conversation there are some people where i they have huge audiences but i don't want that audience like i wouldn't feel cool if i had neo-nazis you know like being like oh we like your stuff scott i think who your audience is matters as well yeah as just the metric do you have a big audience 100 percent. 100 percent you took a break from Twitter for about a year. Uh, you're giving me way too much credit. Yeah. I mean, two months. <laughs> two months? It felt, it's, it felt, like, it felt like an eternity, Scott. I, my feed was so empty without you on it. <laughs> it might have been four months. No, it, it wasn't a year, but it was less than six months. But, so um, we'll say half a year. We'll, half a year. Half a year. The break from Twitter. How did that affect you personally? I was more in touch with my body. Um, I noticed that I was more, I uh, felt more, my actions in my everyday life felt more authentic. Um, I felt like I didn't, wasn't worried or thinking about, you know, if I do that or that or that, you know, like how am I going to be judged? Which is weird because it's not like I broadcast everything I do anyway when I am on Twitter. So it's, uh, it's not like, I, but for some reason when I'm, when I'm online, I feel like every single thing I do in my life, like has a different layer of. It's like a Black Mirror episode that we're, <laughs> that we're living in. Uh, yeah. I can't really describe it. Is it is it like the potentiality of sharing something? Yeah, you know, like if everything has the potentiality yeah. to get likes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you're a dinner conversation. You say something really clever, or funny, and you're like, "Oh, that'd be a killer tweet." I absolutely do do that. You know, I'll be in situations where I will say, "Oh, that would make a good tweet." Hold on, like I'll be in a conversation with someone, like, "Let me tweet that out." Yeah, there's something extra in life. That it brings me that, that I'm not sure it's a good thing. <laughs> but someday I just want to be like, hey, everyone, I'm taking a break from public life. So that that would be the big one. You know, someday where I have enough certain number of books, I'm like, you know, I'm good. Like, I'm good for a year or two. You know, like, I want to just say I'm taking a break from public life and see what that's like. So in one of your earlier books, you talk about mastery goals versus performance goals. And I think this relates to social media. And by the way, I selfishly really like this concept because... It maps really well to one thing I've long talked about in the relationship space, which is that there's two ways to approach relationships. One is through authenticity and the other one is through performance. And approaching relationships through performance, seeing people as kind of algorithmic, if I say or do this, then they will like me, they will give me the affection I want. When you see it in a transactional way, it, it, that's actually what undermines the intimacy and the health of the relationship. And so... When I came across the mastery versus performance goals, it struck me how similar the way you were describing how people's attitudes develop towards their pursuits is very similar to that. Like when people are too performative, they become over overwhelmed with anxiety. They start struggling with uh, self-judgment. They feel lots of shame. And, and I was like, wow, you can have a toxic relationship with a goal. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, it, it's such a good point. You know, a lot of people talk about the growth mindset. They're like, they go crazy over growth mindset. Some research shows that more educators have heard of growth mindset and they've heard of the name Freud. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's big in education circles. I know it's also kind of concerning that there are teachers out there that who've never heard of the Freud. Yeah. That's also a problem. And what I like to say is um, I'm more into growth motivation than I am into growth mindset because you can have growth mindset up the kazoo for the things that are wrong for you. Growth mindset towards alcoholism or something. Yes. It's like, well, you know, yes. I blacked out last night, but I think I can black out better tonight. Yes, like, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, exactly. And uh, I think that growth and motivation is, it, it, it's the motivation that matters. You know, like, are you going toward goals that um, uh, are wise goals for you that fit your deepest skill set, uh, interests, and will also be likely to improve the world? In some way, you know, growth goals are, yeah. are what really matter. So I just, I just think, just like this blanket love for growth mindset, you know, as well as grit. You know, people, the kind of person who likes growth mindset, they also like grit. You know, and um, and I think I'm not saying I'm anti grit. No, yeah. like grit's important, but blind grit, blind growth mindset, you know, are uh, not nothing to be celebrated. Serial killers are gritty. Very true. Very true. Some of them. Yeah, some of them. <laughs> the some, ones that don't get caught. Some serial killers are lazy. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't Just, mean to shame. I don't mean to shame. Yeah, killers. we don't want to shame serial killers. <laughs> if you're a serial killer out there, though, Scott's not trying to shame you right now. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so ridiculous. I'm so ridiculous. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, go um, Yeah. What I was going to say, I feel so I feel like this is a story that plays out in psychology over and over, which is a, a brilliant researcher finds a, uh, a concept or some measurable thing, does a bunch of research around it, gets a lot of great results. Everybody gets super excited. And then when it comes to the implementation into the real world, it gets watered down, like you lose all that context. This is the thing that's, that's so frustrating about psychological concepts. Everything's interrelated. Like everything matters to everything else. And so as soon as you remove, like you disembody that shiny new concept of all the context of like, well, you need to make sure that you are properly motivated and you have good values and you have a strong support network around you and you know, all this stuff. And you just kind of put it in a vacuum. You start to see mixed results or unintended second order effects, you know, and he, I, I feel like we saw this with, with self-esteem decades ago and I haven't followed it closely, but it seems like this has happened a little bit with the growth mindset stuff. It's um, also happened in the trauma world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like the body keeps the score has mm -hmm. just expanded uh, in the public eye to everything. Like everything's trauma now. You know, I got an ad on my Instagram the other day that said like, do you procrastinate? It's a trauma response. You know, it's like, you know, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently we're all fucking survivors then. Yeah. It's an easy way to blame yeah. anything. And to, so you don't have to take responsibility for anything. Yeah. You can say, oh, that was my trauma. Well, this is another interesting tendency that I think happens with these kind of nebulous concepts, which is, I don't know what the term is, but like the, the, the expansion of the definition. Yeah. I mean, everyone's an oppressor depends what your vantage point is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like a profound truth. Yes. Quite controversial, but your perception matters, you know, and whether or not your, your perception is from the in-group or it's from the out-group completely matters. It's, uh, it reminds me of um, the Solzhenitsyn quote about the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. You know, like, it, it, all, it all is perception. It's hard to stand back and objectively kind of have the nuance where you say, well, there's not always just one oppressor uh, uh, or, um, you know, you can have, you're allowed to have more than one victim at a time. Yes. Uh, you're allowed. Yeah. And yet no one ever brings up that possibility. It's always like there's the victim and there's the perpetrator, you know, but like things often emerge and things often inter interact and it gets complicated and there's complexities there. You know, humans are messy. The whole idea that we can reduce one person to an angel and another person to the devil is is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's never worked before, so it, yeah. there's no reason it would start now. Yeah. Why is self-expression potentially healing or therapeutic? 
Um, you know, I, I like to distinguish in my work between uh, like healthy authenticity and assholery authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just saying whatever's on your mind at all times. Some people have a concept in their head that that's authenticity. But I think healthy authenticity, um, it involves four components. One is radical self-honesty. You're really honest with yourself about your talents, your skills, you know, your areas of strengths and weaknesses. Radical um, self-awareness, and, and and not just self-awareness, sorry, just awareness, awareness in general of the world. You know, you you know, if you're talking to someone, you're aware of what's actually going on in front of them and in front of you, and uh, and you're also aware of what's coming up inside you, things like that. Yeah, I also think another aspect of it is integrity. And really staying true to your values, acting in accordance with your values and who you want to be as yeah. well, you know. Authenticity is allowed to not always be aligned to with who you are. It can also be aligned with who you would prefer to be. <laughs> There's there there can be an authenticity to a future self that you want to become. Um, and I think that's important. Um, would that be kind of like fake it till you make it or yeah. where does that come in? Does that come yeah, in? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the, the whole idea of faking it is interesting. You are doing the action. Yeah. In that moment, that is who you are. You know, if I do something that goes against the grid of my normal patterns, that still was a real new action. So the idea of faking is is an interesting one to me because, yeah. Actually, so I'd like to dig into this a little bit because this is a topic in the self-help space that makes me squirm a little bit, but... You do see it a lot. And some people, you know, it, classically, it was fake it till you make it. I think these days, there, it's a lot more around kind of doing like hypothetical visualizations. So like asking yourself, like, what would this feel like if you were a confident person? Or how would you do this presentation if you were a great speaker? And I can see the utility of that. That to me, for some reason, that feels more authentic than fake it till you make it. There's also a strand that is is kind of into this idea of uh, like an alter ego, like kind of oh, right. creating like a kind of side personality that you step into, kind of like a, when Batman puts on his mask and cape. It's not necessarily inauthentic. It's just a separate identity that you've kind of constructed within yourself to perform in this particular context. And then when you're out of that context, you take it off. I'm curious what you think about that. This is a great topic of conversation because uh, I'm a big fan of integration. Uh, I'm not a big fan of having multiple personalities. That, Me too. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was like, you know, now this, now I'm this extreme thing that I usually am never, at, I never am, and yeah. usually never is in contact with that guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I really like the idea of um, an inner harmony where multiple sides or selves are working as a team. Right. I don't think that uh, inner peace comes when you feel like you're fighting a civil war within yourself. Yeah. You know, the, the side's like, oh, you know, they, I hate that guy. And that guy's like, oh, but that guy comes out when I have my alter ego, you know, yeah. then I'll ignore the rest of myself when that guy's oh, <laughs> <laughs> just fuck you all. Yeah. Because this is the fuck you podcast. Was it? Yeah. This, go, go fuck yourself. Go, podcast. <laughs> that guy, yeah, the alter ego is basically like, go fuck yeah. yourself, Scott. You that, know, that's the pot. This yeah. podcast alter ego is to go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I see why that advice is effective. Yeah, me too. For people that really need confidence to... And it feels like a short-term tool. To short-term. Right? Like, so it's, if I'm going to go on a speaking tour and I'm really anxious about it and it's a month long and I'm going to do like 10 dates, I could see like, okay, for this tour, I'm going to have like my little alter ego. I'm going to have my pump up music. I'm going to have my outfit that I put on every day. Like, I get that. Like that, that, that can help you get to the finish line. Where I start feeling uneasy is I'm like you that like my my instinct and based on everything that I know and understand about psychology is like, yeah, you want our harmony and integration are good things. Is like, good thing. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of the behavioral activation approach to change yeah. within psychology. Big, big fan. Uh, my dear friend, Seth Gillahan, pioneered uh, the field of mindful cognitive behavioral therapy, and he has this whole approach, act, think, be. And all three are important, but interesting enough, if you notice, act was the first one. Yes. And then think and then be. And I love it because he does make a point, which is we can overthink things. We can get in our own head too much. And there is a great value in even though we're not waiting till we're ready for it, but to be activate the rest of the system by through actions. 
to move in the direction of where we want to go. So I can say I am a fan of that. Fake it till you make it phrasing, the alter ego phrasing. You know, that's like, I feel like those are, that's like a different thing. You know, you can, it, you can be, to me, you can be aligned and integrated and have the behavioral activation approach. The point there is don't wait until you're ready to act because you'll never act. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the important point there. But still get in touch with your being, with your aligned. Is this something I really want to become? Is this, a, you know, is this someone that I really feel aligned with? And if it is, you know, there's a great integ- there's there's integration there, you know. And how often, how many young uh, men in the clubs, you know, are like, uh, I want to talk to her, but uh, I'm just not, you know, I'm not ready. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna have two more drinks, and then I, and then do you, does that person ever talk to? Her? No, it's, she's off making out with someone else before you have your second drink. <laughs> That's the story of you know my life. But- <laughs> But uh, my young when I was young, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think a lot of people can, a lot of guys can relate to that. But the real key there is the behavioral act approach says don't, don't wait to that conditional. Another big, I'll, I'll, I'll generalize this more to, to all our listeners, not just men. But I'll be happy when yes, I dot dot that's dot. A huge that's one. a huge, huge cognitive one. distortion. This is why I like the mindful CBT approach because that is that falls in the category of a cognitive distortion. But being mindful about it. That, wow, I'm mindful that I have that cognitive distortion and I'm going to override that through the behavioral activation approach. I'm not going to wait till I do X, Y, and Z to be happy. I'm going to go towards this action right now that I know is going to make me happy. I mean, it's so weird. Like we have something right in front of us. We can be happy if we want to, but our mind has these cognitive distortions like, oh, but I'm not ready for that. Or I need this, this, and this before I'm ready to accept that. And if someone's giving you love, you know, how many people with low self-esteem are like, oh, I can't accept that love until I've done something for them first or that I've done this, this, and this. Yeah. Just accept the love. <laughs> Just accept it. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's why is it so hard to act before thought? Yeah, right. You're right. It's so hard to flip that around. It, it, flipping the script is, is it, and yet that's what really calls real transformations in one's life is if you make that flip. We get stuck in our heads. We overthink things because of our cognitive distortions. And that can go down the list. There's like 14 to 20 cognitive distortions that we all would resonate with. You know, like if I was like black, how often of course your day do you have black and white thinking? Do you have catastrophizing? You know, do you have, I already talked about the, con- the conditional, uh, I'll be happy if thing. Uh, entitlement is a cognitive bias that you, it, it, it's such a distortion cognitive distortion to think that you're entitled to everything yeah <laughs> good in the world you know get rid of that you know like yeah you just go down the list and then if you have mindful if you practice mindful cbt as i have really been trying to, trying to practice mindful cbt and I, I love seth's new book on the topic you just throughout the course of the day you really are mindful about these cognitive distortions and you realize holy shit i have been walking around with just a non-stop replay of cognitive distortions that are holding me back from my own well-being and uh, growth, you know? And once you're really mindful of that, you're like, wow, I can really change. Yeah. 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 The best way I ever heard it expressed was in the context of meditation. A good friend of mine who I've known forever is, is a meditation teacher. And I remember I was talking to him once and I was saying like, no, I, I, I'm so, I can never stick to a meditation habit because at least one or two days a week, even if it's 10 minutes, I, it just feels like overwhelming. It's like, wow, I don't have 10 minutes. I've got all this shit to do this morning. I didn't sleep well last night. I got to go to do, do this thing. I got to do a podcast. You know? Yeah, the irony there is that the second you shift into a mindful state of being, that whole way of thinking disappears yes. immediately. Yeah. The moment you act yes. to be, and you spend five minutes in a mindfulness meditation, that all that disappears. But that doesn't matter, Scott, because it's... <laughs> And like, I've known that for fucking 20 years and I still do it. But I remember I was talking to him once about it and he was like, well, why do you need to do 10 minutes? And I was like, well, I I picked 10 because that just seems, and he's like, why not just do one? It's so true. And he, he said, he was like, lower the bar until it gets you to go sit on the pillow. And then once you're on the pillow, be like, I'm going to go do 30 seconds. You can always do 30 seconds. And then once you've done the 30 seconds, be like, okay, I'm going to do three minutes. So true, Mark. And then, and then once so you do true. the three minutes, they'll be like, you know what? I'll stay for 10. <laughs> I'm getting chills because uh, this is a topic that uh, is just gets me emotional. You know, there's, um, I've been obsessed lately with the, in the getting in the arena mm. idea. It's a Roosevelt yeah. thing, but I'm obsessed with this because. Great quote. 
it's really kind of changed my life. I start to think of my, every time I want to do something and it feels like such a big, big task, I think to myself, my only goal is to just state my intention that I'm in the arena. Just get in the arena. Even if it means you just, you're, you're watching everyone else in the arena, you're still in the arena. You yeah. know, like to me, that is so important in various areas of your life to just get in there. I've found it with writing. Like I find that if I'm, if I need to write a script for a video or something and I'm procrastinating for days, I just force myself to open up an empty document and like write the title. And then it's, once I've done that, I'm like, well, I'm here. So I might as well it's so true. <laughs> start writing the first it's sentence. So true. It's so, that's the hardest part, right? Yeah. But that's the hardest part is just the phase shift between you don't exist in this person's life and now you just said hi. There's a world of difference between yeah. not existing and hi. It's like zero to one compared to like one to two. Like it's like not even being on someone's radar. It's infinite. Like, <laughs> an infinite difference. And and you we can build this up to any example of anything, you know. Just you don't know the ripple effects that can happen. You need to trust in the universe. You know that sounds really <laughs> trust the universe. I know that sounds unscientific. Scott Perry Coffin, PhD. <laughs> Top 0.5% scientist. 0.5% scientist. Trust the trust universe. <laughs> But in a certain sense, isn't that what you're doing? Technically, even scientifically, that makes sense. You can't control trust whatever all you the want, factors, whatever you want to call it. Trust the universe, reality, the future, yeah. just existence. Trust let, yourself. Let go. Yeah, because you can't control, and you also there's also a kind of entitlement there. You a big presumption that you know how someone's going to react to you, or you know, yeah, the universe is going to do its thing. We're often surprised. So you have to kind of let yourself go to the surprise of life. So we've, we've spent a lot of this conversation talking about um, victimhood culture, which you're writing a book about right now. Uh, I haven't announced that, but you know, why not? Let this be the announcement. Okay. Okay. If you're cool with hey, that, uh, that. We'll, we'll leave it in. Um, why not? We talked a lot about social media. We've talked a lot about education and the younger generation. I'm curious, since you're very focused on this topic at the moment, this kind of group of topics what do you think is the most under broadcast piece of advice or piece of wisdom out there that like the, what's the thing that needs to be said more but it's not getting said enough let's let's double click on the victim but mentality for a second what is what i think i bring to the table about that is that i'm not the guy you'd expect to write about overcoming a victimhood mentality what i see in this is that the people that are um people the victim mentality they're always pointing their finger at someone else you know like uh, you know if you're on the far right you're like oh those liberals with a victimhood mentality you know yeah even the liberals saying oh look at these republicans are always crying you know about their you know what i want to bring to the table is this notion that all of us no matter our political party no matter our background whether we've gone through trauma or we haven't gone through explicit trauma we can really make profound transformations to our lives with a simple mindset shift of I am not a victim of my circumstances. I mean, to really, to get to get in the arena of I'm not a victim of my circumstances is a, is a true game changer for your whole life. But it's something that has, I want to divorce it from its political connotations. I want to divorce it from, because it applies to all of us. Again, I don't care, you know, I mean, I do care if you're in poverty, but I'm saying regardless of if yeah. you're in poverty or you're, you're, you know, how many people within the top 1%, how many billionaires have a victim mentality right now, you know? So this is not something only, you know, to a certain, you know, everyone's uh, playing this kind of um, card right now and, uh, um, and they're holding themselves back from growth and their own self-actualization. I don't remember if I wrote it in Subtle Art or Everything is Fucked, but um, I made the observation that it's an interesting period in history and that every person and group seems to feel victimized simultaneously and it's just such a strange situation like how that's come to be when my last book came out i talked a lot about entitlement and kind of victimhood and entitlement developing a sense of of you know control over your own life and i think i blurbed that book yeah you did uh, yeah you did blurb that i book. loved it I yeah loved it. um and as a result at the time given kind of everything that was happening politically I got invited to go on the Fox News a bunch of times. And it was funny because one of the times I was on one of the Fox News shows with one of like the more popular anchors. And the whole time they're 
just peppering me with questions about snowflakes and you know victim all the you know, people complaining about their lives and how nobody takes responsibility anymore and all this stuff and i was i was like man it feels kind of shitty like i i told i'm totally getting used for this political narrative right now like I, I can feel it i'm like trying to stay as neutral as possible on the show but they're they just keep framing it the way they want to frame it and uh and it goes to commercial break and during the commercial break the the anchor leans over the desk and they go, you know who the biggest snowflakes are? The people who watch this show. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I was like, I wish that was a hot lake moment. Oh my God. It's obvious, right? But I think, I think, I think the media on all sides, they know. Not only do they know, they use that knowledge to get more. They're taking advantage they of it. They take it, exploit it. Yes. And, uh, you know, I would say trauma's big business right now. Yeah. Victimhood culture's big business. Keeping people there is big business. Not um, helping to get people to the place of healing. I mean, that's where my heart is at, is that I, I want to get people to the promised land. I don't yeah. want to keep them stuck. I don't make more money if I keep them stuck in the victim mentality. This is a criticism I've long written about the self-help industry is that as soon as you feel better, you're no longer a customer. Boom. Yeah. yeah that's so <laughs> exactly what was, that's exactly what I was saying. Yeah. And so it's, it's I'm uh, okay for you not to need me someday. Exactly. That's it. That's what a great coach or teacher is. Like the whole goal of being a good coach or teacher is to get you to a place where you don't need the coach or teacher. Yeah, I want you to get to that place. And so if you are following somebody or listening to somebody who is keeping you in the same spot emotionally. We had, remember we did, we had our pro podcast improv jam on, yeah. on my podcast. And, uh, and I said something which you really agreed with. Uh, you, I said the whole self-help industry dynamic are grandiose narcissists who exploit vulnerable narcissists yes. in a codependent relationship with each other. A hundred percent. And they, the advice is basically teaching the vulnerable narcissist how to behave like grandiose narcissists. Yeah, correct, correct. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, yeah. that's it. That's Fucking it. Fucking nailed it. That's it. <laughs> All right, on that note, I want to go to the last segment. I'm doing this segment with each guest. Are you familiar with the game Fuck, Mary Kill? I'm not familiar with that, no. Okay, so Fuck, Mary Kill, traditionally, the way it works um, is a popular game among teenagers. So you pick three people, and out of those three people, you have to pick one to fuck, one to marry, and one to kill. I gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah. So we're You're gonna... not going to make me play this game, are you? Yeah. On, uh, for we're... a million people. Huh? Yeah, yeah, we're telling you to play Fuck, Mary Kill right oh now. But don't God. worry, we're, we're not going to do people. I thought you were going to say, don't worry, we're not actually going to fuck, marry, or kill them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you were gonna say. Okay, so fuck Mary Kill. For the, for the people here. Oh, not with people though. No. no, no, no. So okay, fuck Mary Kill. Meditation. Therapy. Psychedelics. Oh my god. Okay. Um no, this is forced forced choice. So I just want to make yeah. this clear that I yes. would not have said this just we out understand. of the context of We understand. I mean we'll, we're gonna edit to make it sound as horrible as possible. Okay, kill kill meditation. And I've nuanced there because I prefer mindfulness every day than meditation. Meditation is different than mindfulness. Okay, meditation well, let's practice. Call, let's call it mindfulness. Oh, really? Oh, shoot. You're teaching the... Oh, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because then I, you get me out of my... I could... First of all, what's the difference between meditation and mindfulness? Yeah. Well, when I think meditation, I think of a specific practice where I sit on a cushion and I close my eyes and I have a certain designated period of time. Um, whereas mindfulness to me is something that you apply in your everyday life. I'm applying it right now with you in action, you know, not just sitting in a cushion and closing your eyes and okay. tuning so, yourself out from the world. Okay. So let's do meditation. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Yeah. Mindfulness is more of a, okay. Yeah. That's a, that's too broad. So you'll kill meditation. Why, why do you kill meditation? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> if we, if we make, I, I would marry mindfulness so can we actually make it uh, can you actually make because i would kill therapy i would kill therapy okay i would marry mindfulness okay um then what's the third thing psychedelic and so what is what what, what am i doing to psychedelics then fucking them yeah perfect <laughs> perfect that's perfect perfect okay i feel aligned with all three of those things. awesome so explain yourself Oh, I'd explain it too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what's, what, what's the reasoning? I definitely would love to marry mindfulness. I would love to, that to be something that is just incorporated into my moment-to-moment -moment existence, yeah. you know, and to make mindful decisions and not be controlled by my naughty subconscious. <laughs> Ultimately, when therapy is done right, we talked about this. Yeah. It's it's its whole function should be to erase itself. That it should be its function. I mean, 
being a codependent relationship with your therapist is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, ultimately if I was able to kill it, that means I'm in, I'm in a place where I can really, um, be more mindful of my life and, uh, and maybe even get my therapy through, um, making sweet, sweet love with, uh, psychedelics. <laughs> There's, there's actually a lot of good research suggesting that um, psychedelics can be a good uh, integrative form of therapy with a good guide. Yeah. yeah, I believe it. I totally believe it. I understand that what I said doesn't paint therapy in the best light. Yeah. And that's, you know, funny for someone who hosts the psychology podcast to say yeah. that. So I just do want to clarify that, like, ultimately to kill it, you know, it'll be good. But I don't want to kill therapy. You know what I mean? Therapy is a funny one. I think it's actually it's probably good to dig into this a little bit because i i have recommended therapy to my audience my entire career i still actively recommend it i think it's something everybody should at least try at some point in their life and it does have pretty incredible benefits for a lot of people in a lot of circumstances that said it is so it's so situational it's so much of it really seems to depend on the unique relationship between the patient and therapist so much of it depends on finding a good therapist so much of it depends on your attitude going into the therapy and like what you're willing to focus on and work on how mindful you're willing to be uh about what's going on in your life therapy has had the best pr it's it's like the most widely accepted mainstream form of psychological intervention and when you actually look on, at the data on its track record it's not stellar there's actually a meta-analysis shows not a very high, yeah, very small effect size. Yeah, it's barely above placebo. Not to say that anything else in psychology has a stellar, has a stellar track record either. But, you know, it, it's, it's therapy is, it seems to be very effective in specific contexts, generally mildly effective across many contexts, and also often not effective at all. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah, it, and there's so many different orientations, and I think that the depending on the orientation, the proved effective, the shown effectiveness differs yeah. quite dramatically. Um, and also, what what complicates that whole situation is that so you can look at these meta analyses and and pull out different factors to see which ones increase effectiveness versus decrease it. Like overall, it's it's looking bad yeah. for therapy, but when you zoom in on certain things like the um, presence. You can actually rate the presence of the therapist and you look at that factor. That's actually a big one. Yeah. Um, the extent to which um, a client uh, feels, a patient feels seen and heard. I don't like calling them patients. <laughs> I vaguely recall yeah, seeing some data on that and it kind of found there's almost like kind of therapists, superstar therapists. Yeah, there are superstar who Who just consistently get great results and then they kind of pull the average up <laughs> for everybody else. They have great presence. Yeah. I think the ACT approach um, has been getting some good um, effectiveness. Uh, ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. Yes, yes. I'm, yes. I'm a big fan of as well. Yes, but he he makes it very clear that it's not an acronym. <laughs> yeah. I was on a, he was on a podcast once and I oh, said, yeah. what does ACT stand for? He's like, it does not stand for anything. But actually, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love him. I yeah, love, yeah. I, love, I love him. And and uh, CBT has a lot of research, but it's not the right fit for everyone. See, the fit is what also complicates the situation. From what I've seen, CBT is greater for anxiety. Like it, it seems to outperform uh, people with anxiety issues, and then everything else, it's kind of in the the miasma. And, and I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of of bringing back depth depth psychology union depth psychology you know that that i've argued that that's really um, missing and then humanistic psychology um is not as prominent as it, as it once was and also i think psychoanalysis can be incredibly beneficial um just you know not always i, I think that a, a multi-targeted approach is going to be the best therapist all right one more yeah okay this, this is fun fuck mary kill extroversion conscientiousness openness to new experiences okay well oh th i mean that's really hard that's really <laughs> really it's like killing my babies <laughs> that one's really hard um i guess you know i i have to choose right this is a this is like one of those horror movies this is a for forced choice it's like saw six yes yeah, <laughs> like, no scott scott you have no choice yeah i openness to experience is my favorite so i'm i'm gonna say love uh marrying openness to experience i'm marrying because that leaves me two others i 
extroversion is not my defining uh, trait, um, so I'm going to kill it. Yeah. And uh, conscientiousness, that leaves me, what am I doing to conscientiousness? I'm fucking, I'm fucking conscient. Wow, that's so interesting to think about. Fucking conscient. Maybe I, maybe I should be fucking openness. Oh, maybe I should be fucking openness. Yeah, yeah, no. I, okay, I'm fucking openness, and I'm marrying conscientiousness, and I'm killing extroversion. <laughs> that feels more aligned. That feels more aligned. Okay. Because I don't know what it would mean to fuck conscientiousness, you know, to have... Like, I feel like that's something you really kind of need in your life on a regular basis. <laughs> so explain yourself. Why are you? I'm being ridiculous. Why are you? Well, this, the whole game is fucking ridiculous. So, ridiculous. so uh, explain yourself. Why are you marrying conscientiousness? And by, by the way, for people listening, these are three of the big five personality traits. But now I feel like I'm going back. I feel like I'm going back. Now I feel like I want to marry openness again. This is, this is why I have commitment issues. <laughs> This you you have inadvertently like <laughs> triggered all of my issues that I have in my life right now. <laughs> I just don't know what it would mean to make love to conscientiousness. That I just don't even know. It just that. means that you would be you would fuck it very conscientiously, like take very, oh, oh, be very care a oh. lot of care and wait. But but fucking is not love. Wait, so actually fucking is different than marrying. Yeah, right? it's fucking. The yeah. point is that you're fucking it. So, which is like, that's not even love. It's kind of like a fling. So therefore I am fucking conscientious. Yes. <laughs> and I am, yes, that makes sense now. That makes sense. Now it all makes sense because I don't want conscious. I, I do want to live in an open state of being yeah. all the time. And I would, and I love it. And I marry it. Consciousness comes along every now and then when I have to get something done. <laughs> ah, you know? gotcha. And, and, and when I have to pound it, yeah, I'll, I'll pound it. But I don't want to pound it all the time. Yeah, yeah. No pun <laughs> When I want to crush something. <laughs> awesome. Scott, it was a pleasure. So much fun. I'm <laughs> fun, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Thanks, man. This was the Subtle Art Not Giving a Fuck podcast. Sign up for the newsletter, your next breakthrough. This is Scott Barry Kaufman. And uh, we will be back next week. So don't fuck your conscientiousness. <laughs> Too much. Yeah.